Translation and purport by Srimad Prabhupada. Translation. By those riches, the king could procure the ingredients for three horse sacrifices. Thus the pious king Yudhisthira, who was very fearful, after the battle of Kurukshetra, please Lord Hari, the personality of Godhead. Purport. Okay, this is a long purport. So as we're going through the purport, we should really try to focus on Shiva Prabhupada's various points. Prabhupada's going to talk about the purpose of sacrifice and particular kinds of sacrifice. Okay. Maharaj Yudhisthira was the ideal and celebrated pious king of the world until he was greatly afraid after the execution of the Battle of Kurukshetra because of the mass killing in the fight all of which was done only to install him on the throne. He therefore took all the responsibility for sins committed in the warfare, and to get rid of all these sins, he wanted to perform three sacrifices in which horses are offered at the altar. Such a sacrifice is very costly. Even Maharaja Yudhisthira had to collect the necessary heaps of gold left by Maharaj Maruta and the Brahmanas who were given gold in charity by King Maruta. The learned Brahmanas could not take away all the loads of gold given by Maharaj Maruta, and therefore they left behind the major portion of the gift. And Maharaj Maruta also did not again collect such heaps of gold given away in charity. Besides that, all the golden plates and utensils which were used in the sacrifice were also thrown in the dustbin, and all such heaps of gold remained unclaimed property for a long time, until Maharaj Yudhisthira collected them for his own purposes. Lord Sri Krishna advised the brothers of Maharaj Yudhisthira to collect the unclaimed property because it belonged to the king. The more astonishing thing is that no subject of the state also collected such unclaimed gold for industrial enterprise or anything like that. This means that the state citizens were completely satisfied with all necessities of life and therefore not inclined to accept unnecessary productive enterprises for sense gratification. Maharaj Yudhisthira also requisitioned the heaps of gold for performing sacrifices and for pleasing the supreme Hadi personality of Godhead. Otherwise, he had no desire to collect them for the state treasury. He was afraid of sins committed on the battlefield, and therefore he wanted to satisfy the supreme authority. This indicates that unintentional sins are also committed in our daily occupational discharge of duty, and to counteract even such unintentional crimes, one must perform sacrifices as they are recommended in the revealed scriptures. The Lord says in Bhagavad Gita, that one must perform sacrifices mentioned in the scriptures in order to get rid of commitments of all unauthorized work or even unintentional crimes which we are apt to commit. By doing so, one shall be freed from all kinds of sins. And those who do not do so but work for self-interest or sense gratification have to undergo all tribulations accrued from committed sins. Therefore, the main purpose of performing sacrifices is to satisfy the Supreme Personality Hari. The process of performing sacrifices may be different in terms of different times, places, and persons. But the aim of such sacrifices is one, and is one and the same at all times and in all circumstances, viz. satisfaction of the Supreme Lord Hari. That is the way of pious life, and that is the way of peace and prosperity in the world at large. Maharaj Yudhisthira did all these as the ideal pious king in the world. If Maharaj Yudhisthira is a sinner in his daily discharge of duties, in royal administration of state affairs, 
wherein killing of man and animals is a recognized art, then we can just imagine the amount of sins committed consciously or unconsciously by the untrained population of the Kali Yuga who are not performing any sacrifices to please the Supreme Lord. The Bhagavatam says, therefore, that the prime duty of the human being is to satisfy the Supreme Lord by the performance of one's occupational duty. Let any man of any place or community, caste or priest, be engaged in any sort of occupational duty, but he must agree to perform sacrifices, as it is recommended in the scriptures, for the particular place, time, and person. In the Vedic literatures, it is recommended that in Kali Yuga, people engage in glorifying the Lord by chanting the holy name of Krishna without offense, and that by doing so, one can be freed from all sins, and thus can attain the highest perfection of life by returning home back to Godhead. Here to Nad Eva Krishna Sya, Mukta Sangha Param Brajet, Bhagavatam 12.351. We have already discussed this more than once in this great literature in different places, especially in the introductory portion, by sketching the life of Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and still we are repeating the same, with a view to bring about peace and prosperity in society. The Lord has declared openly in Bhagavad Gita how he becomes pleased with us, and the same process is practically demonstrated in the life and preaching work of Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the perfect process of performing yajyas, or sacrifices, to please the Supreme Lord Hari, the personality of Godhead, who gets us free from all miseries of existence, is to follow the ways of Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in this dark age of quarrel and dissension. Maharaj Yudhisthira had to pr- collect heaps of gold to secure the paraphernalia for the horse sacrifice yajyas in days of sufficiency. So we can hardly think of such performance of yajyas in these days of insufficiency and complete scarcity of gold. At the present moment, we have heaps of paper and promises of their being converted into gold by economic development of modern civilization. And still there is no possibility of spending riches like Maharaj here, either individually or collectively or by state patronization. Just suitable, therefore, for the age is the method recommended by Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in terms of the Shastra. Such a method requires no expenditure at all and yet can award more benefit than other expensive methods of yoga performances. The horse sacrifice yajna or cow sacrifice yajna performed by the Vedic regulations shouldn't be misunderstood as a process of killing animals. On the contrary, animals offered for the yajna were rejuvenated to a new span of life by the transcendental power of chanting the Vedic hymns, which, if properly chanted, are different from what is understood by the common layman. The Veda mantras are all practical, and the proof is rejuvenation of the sacrificed animal. There is no possibility of such methodical chanting of the Vedic hymns by the so-called brahmanas or priests at the present age. The untrained descendants of the twice-born families are no more like their forefathers, and thus they are counted among the shudras, or once-born men. The once-born man is unfit to chant the Vedic hymns, and therefore there is no practical utility of chanting the original hymns. And to save them all, Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu propagated the Sankirtan movement, or yajna, for all practical purposes. And the people of the present age are strongly recommended to follow this sure and recognized path. By those riches, the king could produce the ingredients for seahorse sacrifices. Thus, the pious king Yudhisthira, who was very fearful after the battle of Kutchetra, pleased Lord Hari, the personality of Godhead. So there was this huge accumulation of gold, huge, because uh, so many years ago, King Maruta 
had given gold and charity to Brahmanas at the end of the sacrifice. And he gave so much gold that the Brahmanas weren't able to carry it all. And rather than making arrangements to carry it, they just left whatever they were not able to personally carry. In addition, there were gold utensils used in Maharaj Maruta's sacrifice. And after being used once, they were put aside. And no one touched this gold. So the Brahmanas didn't touch it because they didn't need it. The king, Maruta, didn't touch it because he'd already given it to the Brahmanas. And the citizens, throughout all the intervening years, didn't touch it because they didn't need it. So in the time of Maharaj Maruta, no one would touch it because it was the property of the Brahmanas. We hear in the story of King Riga that once you give something away, especially to a Brahmana, there's no question of touching it anymore. But of course, after those Brahmanas had uh, died, then the property was basically up for grabs, but nobody touched it. And here Prabhupada's saying that it was considered that this property now belonged to the king. So what kind of a society would there be if there was heaps of gold that nobody was interested in collecting? I mean, just imagine that kind of a society. So suppose that you knew, suppose everybody in the town where you live knew that there was an incredible amount of gold. We're not told the amount here, but it must have been substantial. And nobody touches it because they don't need it, because they're satisfied, because they have everything they could possibly want. What would be the nature of such a society? I mean, you'd have to have a society in which two things were present. First of all, people's material needs must have been more than amply satisfied. People must have had much more than adequate housing and clothing and food and entertainment, public facilities, schools and medical care and recreation, parks and gardens, all the things that human beings want in society must have been there so much that people couldn't even utilize it all. And so they would have had no use for anything extra. And the other thing that would have had to be there is people would have had to have a mood an internal sense of satisfaction. You know, I, I was saying to my son yesterday that uh, we were talking about we're about to travel and we're looking at, you know, what kind of ticket we can get for traveling and preaching. And I said, you know, it's very rare that I want something that I actually don't have the means to get. And I said, I'm not sure if what that means is that whatever I want, Krishna's providing for me, or if I've simply modified my desires according to what Krishna's provided. And my son looked at me and said, I think it's the second one. Uh, but the point is, if we're satisfied with what we have, so the citizens must have been satisfied with what they have. And they must have had plenty, because we cannot assume, it would be erroneous to assume, that all the citizens were self-realized souls. They weren't all Atmarama. They weren't all on the Brahma Bhutta platform, the Sochitun Kanchitu. So in order for them to be fully satisfied with what they had, there would have had to have been great quantity, and people would have had to have been, to a large extent, influenced by the mode of goodness, because the mode of passion is what brings unlimited desires and hankering. So what must it be like to live in such a society? I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, because most of us have desire, have unfulfilled desires, and most of us have material living situation that we could certainly 
be willing to improve upon if we had more wealth. I mean, most of us would have nicer food. Maybe we'd buy all, all organic food if we had more wealth or we'd get a better car or we you know, and if some, for most of us, if someone offered us the opportunity of easily getting a large amount of wealth, most of us wouldn't turn it down. I mean, just, you know, somebody came up to us today and said, hey, there's a huge pile of gold that's free for the taking. Just go and take as much as you want. Which of us would say, oh, it's okay, I've already got whatever I need. What kind of a society must it have been? Of course, those of us who are devotees of Krishna, we might say, well, let us collect this gold for yagya. And that's, of course, exactly what Maharaji just did. Now, generally, generally, uh, the ordinary worship and yagya, there was also sufficient wealth for that care of the deities in the temples, the maintenance of the brahmanas who took care of the deities, the maintenance of the study of the shastra, the taking care of uh, maintaining those who were writing transcendental literature, those who were teaching, those who were studying, those who were worshiping. That was all covered. So a society where all of the ordinary day-to-day Sacrifice and jagya for Krishna. That was already covered. What wasn't covered was some extraordinary sacrifice. Something extraordinary. Just like I've been on the Polish tour, and that requires a huge expenditure. They have a specialized truck that that has a stage, like a fold-out stage that comes out of the truck. And all these lights and speakers and sound equipment, tents, and so many things. So that's extraordinary. You know, normally to do our sacrifice of Harinam Sankirtan, we just walk down the street. You know, our expenditures, maybe the gasoline or petrol we have to use in the car maintenance to get to where we want to do Sankirtan. But then we also have extraordinary Sankirtan festivals that require large expenditures. So Maharaj Yudhisthira felt that he needed to do something extraordinary, and therefore this extra wealth was touched. So this is the kind of society that we would like to live in. And interestingly enough, this is the kind of society that comes when the leaders are Krishna conscious. Now we've made this point many times before, but it bears often repeating that a Krishna conscious society is also materially prosperous. A Krishna conscious society is also materially prosperous. Srila Prabhupada's often repeated instructions against social welfare work do not mean that if we have a Krishna conscious society, people are not taken care of and there's no prosperity. It doesn't mean that Krishna conscious leaders ignore the material needs of the, of the people that they care for. It's not what it means. The prohibition against uh, social welfare work is a prohibition against thinking that social welfare work in and of itself is bhakti yoga. Social welfare work in and of itself is just extended selfishness. You know, some animals just take care of themselves and little higher animals, they take care of their mate and they take care of their children. Or they, a little higher, they may, if they're in a herd or a colony, they take care of their whole society. So social welfare work on a materialistic level by materialistic people is no better than the bees taking care of their bee colony. And if one thinks that that spiritual one is an illusion, 
However, someone who is spiritually realized has as part of their service taking care of the material needs of the people that they are in charge of. The parents have to take care of all the needs, material and spiritual of their children. And similarly, the head of a village, or the head of a, of a country, a state, has to take care of their material needs to, this, to such a point that if there's mounds of gold, nobody is interested. They just don't need it. They just simply don't need it. I mean, I've sometimes been to a program where there was so much prasad and so much food that I, I couldn't eat it. And I had no interest in it. I didn't want to, they didn't want to eat it at that time, nor did I want to put it in a package and take it away. So that's the kind of prosperity and wealth that we're looking for. Now, how does one get that level of prosperity? Through jagya. Through sacrifices. So you were looking at, at two aspects of sacrifice here. One is that because of the sacrifice, therefore the kingdom was full of prosperity. And also that sacrifice has to be done to nullify sin, even accidental sin. Now this is something we should be, just like I said here, Marjorie was afraid. We should be afraid of accidental sin. In the 18th, the purport of Mantra 18 of Ishopanishad, Srila Prabhupada defines mistake as an accidental sin. And we talk about how the liberated souls are free from imperfect senses, cheating, illusion, and mistakes. Now, by that, we do not mean that a liberated soul never puts his right shoe on the left foot or never mixes up the words of the sloka. That's not what we mean by that. Uh, what we mean by that is that they don't accidentally commit any sin. Everything they do, because, uh, as explained in Bhagavad Gita 424, everything merges into transcendence. So if everything is transcendental, then there's no question of sin. Everything done in a total trance of Krishna consciousness, there's no question of sin. So Maharaj Yudhisthira's fear of sin here is really just to set an example for human beings. It's not that Maharaj Yudhisthira has committed any sin. But as, as that's part of his role, that's part of his duty, that's part of his service to Krishna, to appear as if, oh, I, there's so many sins committed to make me king, I have to do some sacrifice. But for somebody in conditioned life, definitely we're committing sins. Sins means that we're committing some harm. Uh, we're committing some harm to some other living entity or we're using Krishna's energy in an inappropriate way. So this happens. You know, we're, we're going to be hurting other people without meaning to. Sometimes we intentionally hurt other people. If there's something we want badly enough, we may feel that the way to get it is to hurt other people. And particularly, we tend to hurt people that we love and are close to. Uh, generally, we don't hurt them physically, uh, but at least we hurt them emotionally. Try to make them feel guilty or unhappy or in some way, in order to get them to do what we want. So we do that intentionally. I think most conditioned souls do that, at least some of the time. And we also hurt other living entities sort of as collateral damage. You know, I'm trying to get something that I need or something that I want. I realize that other people are getting hurt. I'm not, I'm not planning to hurt them, but I realize they're getting hurt. And 
I just consider that their hurt is unavoidable in order to get what I need. So I have some uh, some sense of sorrow that other people are getting hurt, but at the same time, I don't really make an effort to avoid it, or I don't think it's avoidable. Then another time is when in the process of getting what I want or what I need, I hurt people without even being aware that I'm hurting people. I don't, I don't even know that they've been hurt. I don't know that I've said something or done something that's caused pain to another living entity. And this is the case with most meat eaters in the world today, that they're hardly even aware. Either they're just not aware, they just don't think about it. They're just sitting and eating without thinking about it. Or if they are aware, they consider it collateral damage. They think, well, I've got to eat. And I'm sorry that the animal has to die, but, you know, what can I do? I've got to eat. So this is the, the general way in which we commit unintended sin. So what do we, what, how is it that sacrifice brings prosperity and frees us from unintended sin and unintentional sin? Let's look for a minute at what is sacrifice. The Prabhupada quotes Bhagavad Gita 3.9, regular chart coming on that chart, local and Bhagavad Gita begins with the understanding that I am a soul and that my main way of action in this world should be for my spiritual benefit, not for my material benefit. And how do I do that? I do that by making all of my actions a sacrifice. Actually, all of my actions are already a sacrifice. I am already uh, sacrificing in order to work. I'm sacrificing for the family. I'm already making so many sacrifices. But generally, I'm doing those sacrifices at the altar of my body or my mind or my family or my community or my nation. I'm already giving. That's my dharma, is to sacrifice and to give and to serve. I can't be an enjoyer. I am a giver. I'm an indirect enjoyer. My enjoyment is by serving others. I, I don't enjoy directly. Like the hand doesn't enjoy directly. It enjoys by putting food in the stomach. So the hand is, is an enjoyer, but uh, indirectly through service. So the living entities definitely can enjoy but the living entities enjoy through service, through giving. So we're all giving. And the difference between what we call sacrifice, Vedic sacrifice, and what everybody always did, does, is the objective. The person for whom one's sacrificing and the reason for which one's sacrificing. So on the lowest level of consciousness, the vikarmi, one is not trying to sacrifice at all. Of course, one is sacrificing because you have to sacrifice. But one is in the mood that I'm just going to take. You know, the hand is just thinking, I'm going to rub the food on myself. I'm not going to put the food in the stomach. Well, this is the mentality of the thief. All sin is basically stealing. That's what it is. Taking something without paying for it. Sacrifice means paying for it. So on the lowest level, one is simply a thief. One is simply trying to take. And this is the prominent mood in modern society where Prabhupada mentions here is insufficiency. As soon as you have a thieving mentality, eh, Krishna will still maintain you because you're his parts and parcels. But he's not going to maintain you with sufficiency. Just like we, we don't maintain the prisoners with opulence. They're maintained. You know, they get some clothes, they get some 
bathing facility. I once talked to someone in jail who told me they let them bathe like once a week. You know, you get some food. It's not very good food. There's not a lot of variety of food. You get a place to sleep. It's not very nice. So when you're a criminal, Krishna still takes care of you, but it's not exactly an opulence. But this is all of modern society. Let's just steal from the earth. Let's pour chemicals on the earth so we can grow as much produce as possible in a short amount of time. Let's steal the oil out of the earth. Now let's steal the minerals out of the earth. It's just all stealing. It's just taking the property of God. Even our energy and our talent. We're taking it and using it in a way that's harmful to others. Or the modern entertainment, the vast majority of the modern entertainment is harming people. Just saying materialistic life is all there is. Just enjoy the material world. Have illicit sex, take intoxication, eat meat and gamble. Right? That's the kind of the mantra of the modern entertainment. So they're stealing. They're taking the talents and the abilities of people. Incredible. Prabhupada says everyone has some extraordinary talent. And instead of using it in the service of God as sacrifice, uh, they're using it to take people away from Krishna. Well, that is stealing. Using, using other people, using animals, using the earth. And such people cannot be happy. You can't be happy when you're a thief. The irony is that to be a thief, you have to work just as hard, or maybe even harder, you know, if I go to work and I work all day, or if I make plans to steal at night, the thief also is working hard. He has to plan where to steal and how to steal. And well, Stealing can easily be a full-time job. And plus, when one is a thief, and one is always in anxiety that they're going to get caught. So the modern life, they're thinking, we're not going to sacrifice for God. You know, we're, we're just going to steal. And they're also working hard. And then they're always in anxiety. I mean, what's really interesting about modern society is they keep getting more and more technological advancements, trying to save time. And it takes more time. You know, when, when I first got a computer, I thought, wow, I'm going to save so much time with my correspondence. Instead of having to, you know, type a letter over again just because I want to move a paragraph. I can just move the paragraph on my computer and I'll save so much time. You know, I used to spend maybe two or three hours every Saturday answering my correspondence. Oh, now there's email. Oh, it'll be so much faster. You know, I don't have to print out the paper. You don't have to get an envelope and address it and put on a stamp and walk to the mailbox and press a button. And now I have a hundred times more correspondence. Correspondence now takes up a huge amount of my time. Practically every day I have to deal with an hour or two hours of correspondence instead of once a week. So this is the irony. Right? Prahlad Maharaj said the, the, problem, the solutions are worse than the problems. So when, when things are being used in a way that, that's exploitive, then they actually, it's not that you save time, it's not that you save energy, you simply more time and then anxiety. So that's the vikarmis. And the karmis understand Okay, I have to sacrifice if I want to be happy. So they sacrifice to God or maybe to the demigods. 
with the aim of enjoying. That's like the good citizens in the country, instead of being thieves, they're honest citizens, they pay their taxes, and then they have the right to enjoyment. They may not love the government, they may not care about the government, they may even be very critical of the government, but they abide by the laws of the government and they pay their taxes. So that's people in the mode of passion. People in the mode of ignorance, they're just stealing people in the mode of passion. They're upright dharmic citizens. The ultimate mode of passion, person Prabhupada explains, is the king. So Prasant looks like Maharaj Yudhisthira is called Dharma Putra, the ultimate uh, following of ethics and morality. But generally, materially dharmic persons, although they have the idea of sacrifice, but still their purpose is personal sense gratification. So then you have higher than that is the jnanis. The jnanis realize, wait a minute, if I'm going to be sacrificing, See, the karmis realize, well, if I've got to work hard anyway, why not work hard in an honest way so that I can enjoy without anxiety? The jnanis think, wait a minute, if I've got to work and sacrifice anyway, why not work and sacrifice in such a way that I'll get free from material entanglement? And Prabhupada very nicely explains, I believe it's in the purport to the verse he quotes here. Yes. It's in the same uh, area. And Prabhupada's quoting one two thirteen. So in that same chapter, Prabhupada talks about how we need to, in the, I think it's in the Shrama Eva, he cable number, Prabhupada says we need to know the needs of the soul, and the need for the soul is freedom. Prabhupada says he wants to be in the, in the light, the free light of the spirit. So the Gyanis, <coughs> they understand that sacrificing just to get nicer food and nicer clothing and a nicer home and parks and gardens and that that's not going to fulfill the real needs of the soul. So they sacrifice for the sake of purification. That's in the mode of goodness. So such persons, either they can be doing the normal occupational duties, which Robin mentions here in this purport, where it doesn't matter what occupational duties that you're doing, Robin says here, they, must be, they can be engaged in any sort of occupational duties. But they're doing it now, instead of for material enjoyment, they're doing it now for purification. That's their purpose. Their purpose is let me become purified for material identification, let me realize that I'm a soul, and let me achieve liberation. Then, higher than that, we're starting to get into transcendence, are the uh, jnana yogis, the meditators, they're meditating on Panamatma, or they're meditating on Lord Narayana. And they want liberation, but they're not interested in Sayuji Mukti. They're not interested in emerging kind of liberation. They actually want to do service for the Lord. So those people have realized, wait a minute, if I've got to sacrifice anyway, if that's my nature to sacrifice, then, and if I'm going to sacrifice for purification then why not find the ultimate purification and the ultimate freedom? So those people are attached to liberation in Vaikuntha. And they're thinking, let me get the ultimate opulence and happiness. Why have material opulence and happiness? Why not get Vaikuntha opulence and happiness? And then, of course, above those, the highest level of meditators are the bhaktas, 
and of course the Vaikuntha residents are also bhaktas, but higher than those are the Krishna bhaktas who are not even interested in spiritual opulence and spiritual personal happiness, but are only interested in Krishna's happiness. They've understood if I have to sacrifice anyway, if that's my dharma to be a giver, then let me give not just so I can achieve the best spiritual opulence and spiritual happiness, but let me give as an exchange of love. Because what I really want more than opulence and happiness is I want, I want love. I want an exchange. I want an exchange, a connection. I want communication and understanding and love and appreciation. That's what I want. I want to be fully uh, free, certainly, and I want to be fully myself free, but I want to be fully free in connection with Krishna. So that is the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice is the sacrifice of any and all selfishness. Such sacrifice of selfishness should not be confused with somebody who gives up all their money and family to go help poor people in some war-torn country. That's laudable. It is laudable. We're not denigrating it. But that's not what we mean. When we talk about it, this is sometimes imitated. People think the ultimate sacrifice for Krishna means something like that, or they think it means something like, I only do what I don't like, and I'm just miserable all the time, and I don't care that I'm miserable because I'm pleasing Krishna. So we don't mean that either. We mean a natural sacrifice that happens in love. That when you love somebody, you enjoy sacrificing for them. You enjoy, you know, taking the time to go to a store and buy something that they want, just to see the look of happiness on their face and just to see their satisfaction when they use what you buy for them. And that is your happiness. You're not sacrificing your happiness at all. In fact, you find more happiness by giving to someone you love than you find by doing something for ourselves directly. We all experience that. To be a catalyst for someone else's happiness. To use my time, my energy, my money, my thought to be a catalyst for someone else's happiness. Because I love them and they love me. And that is the ultimate sacrifice. It's a very natural and pleasing kind of sacrifice. And it's one that uh, is also, one can never get enough of it. Right? If there's a sweet reciprocation with someone we love for our sacrifice, then we'll do more and more and more and more and more. We don't say, okay, well, I've sacrificed enough for this. This is actually love. So that's the ultimate sacrifice. Of course, the form of sacrifice, Prabhupada makes the point here several times, is different according to different time, place, and circumstances. So whether one is sacrificing uh, as a thief, whether one is sacrificing as a karmi, as a fruitive worker, whether one is sacrificing for personal purification, whether one is sacrificing for liberation in Vaikuntha, or whether one is sacrificing out of completely pure love, that sacrifice, the specific nature of it, is going to change according to various circumstances. So the Vedas give specific ways of sacrifice. First of all, they give general sacrifice in one's occupation, that one is doing one's occupation for the purpose of sacrifice. 
So one's doing, and the, the stealer, the thief, they're doing their sacrifice just so they can get some immediate benefit. The materialistic person was doing it so that the demigods or the Lord would be pleased and pay them. <laughs> you know, just like, let, let's look at it in a business, just to make this very clear. So let's say you work in a job, and you're superficially doing just enough work to stay in the job, but really you're, you're stealing from the company. So you're walking off with pencils or computers or you're embezzling the company. So you look like it's, uh, you know, you're in there, but your whole mentality is how to steal. So then the employee, they're working to please the company, but they really don't care about pleasing the company or the company officers. What they care about is making a good salary and getting a raise and having a nice situation. They're self-focused. And then anything higher above that, uh, someone above that who's working for self-purification, maybe they're working at a job so that they can become everything that they can be, do something, make some meaningful contribution to society. And then above that would be someone who's working for the company because they really take on the mission and the goals of the company. They're, they're dedicated to the ideology of the company. So the V-Karmi is someone who's, they're working, but they're working to steal. The Karmi is they're working apparently to please uh, the universal controllers, but they're doing it, their, their center is totally selfish. Another is working, again, selfishly, but wanting freedom, wanting to become who they really are, to realize themselves. And the higher ones are working out of, out of love, out of dedication. Uh, on the lower level of that, mixed with some desire for personal enjoyment, even spiritual enjoyment. So that's the first kind of sacrifice in our ordinary work. The three aspects of work, ordinary, desired, and emergency the work that we would normally be doing in order to live in this world. Each of us has a way of working in this world. We have to cook, we have to clean, we have to shop, and we have our particular nature that we are, in, that we are engaging in in order to earn our livelihood. As Krishna says, no one can maintain their physical body without work. And we, our particular work is coming from the modes of nature. So according to our nature, we have some particular work to maintain our body. We do that, then what mood do we do it in? Do we do it in the mood of a thief? Do we do it in the mood of an employee who's just looking for their own salary? Do we do it in the mood that of becoming everything I can be and finding freedom and finding personal satisfaction? Or do I do it because I'm very inspired by the ideology, or do I do it at the highest level of that, where I really have love for the owners? So that's the first kind of sacrifice. The other kind of sacrifice is on the purely spiritual platform, where I'm engaging, I'm not engaging my occupation, but I'm engaging directly in Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu Smadhanam. Now, in former ages, this took the form of very elaborate rituals. And human beings have some need for ritual. Ritual signifies, okay, this is a purely spiritual activity. This is not something in the ordinary life. Some sort of ritual, some sort of celebration act is psychological markers for us. And in fact, we need that sort of thing. Even a secular society 
has rituals and festivals, etc. So in former ages, these sort of rituals and festivals took the form of very costly and elaborate sacrifices, where people would get faith in the Vedic mantra because there was something that we would call magic that was happening right in front of their eyes. That the Brahmanas at that time were very skilled in the chanting of mantras. And so they could put an animal into the fire to kill it, and in front of everyone's eyes, a rejuvenated animal would come out. And people would go, whoa. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing Jesus did to give people faith. He would do miracles. He'd heal sick people, made Lazarus rise from the dead, and then people thought, wow, this guy has power. Let's follow him. So the Brahmanas used to do that. They used to perform jagyas where they would do magic, essentially. I mean, I don't know any other way to, to put it. And people would become impressed and they would get faith. They would get faith in something beyond gross matter. And by having faith in something beyond gross matter, they would take up the processes of jagya and purification in their own lives. You, know, you you have to have faith to get started. That's the adhikar. You go Swami talks about the three levels of adhikar for performing vaidhi and bhakti, and they deal with levels of faith in the shastra. The shastra is like an instruction manual, or like a map. You know, when you're going somewhere, you stop and ask somebody for directions. So, to what extent you follow that person's directions is dependent on how much faith you have that that person is giving you authentic directions. So people are going to follow the Shastra, follow the guidance of the Brahmanas according to their faith, but because the, the results from the Shastra and the Brahmanas are subtle, they would also demonstrate something on the gross platform in order to give people faith. So those kind of rituals were performed in other times, and Prabhupada makes the point that we can't do that kind of sacrifice at the present time for two reasons. First of all, to do it properly requires a lot of money, and we don't even have enough money to live nicely. Now, most of us, uh, the food we eat is, can hardly be called food. It's something that's grown with fertilizers and pesticides. It's picked before it's ripe, then it's shipped long distances. And, I mean, if you ever eat real food, and a lot of what we eat today is just, it's hardly nourishing to the body. People are getting so many diseases from eating things that are, don't have all of the nutrients. You know, if you can eat all organically grown, locally grown, tree-ripened, vine-ripened fruit, <laughs> that's quite an opulence in modern society. And generally, you have to pay a lot of money for food like that or have a big garden with a lot of land. But we don't even have enough money to eat. Now, most people in modern society don't even have proper clothing. Proper clothing is made of wool and silk and cotton. I mean, if you want to buy silk today, it costs a fortune. Most of us, you know, our houses are not very nice. We read the descriptions of the houses in ancient times or our, our, the jewelry. You know, people just have cubic zirconia. <laughs> so people, formerly, the women had jewelry made of gold and jewels. One proposed prophet said, not even gold. He said gold was low class, but, but precious stones. 
So today people don't even have enough opulence for their daily life. Here it's explained that Mara's Yudhisthira required wealth over and above the daily maintenance. We don't even have enough for the daily maintenance. So how in the world are we going to get enough money to perform these big sacrifices? I mean, this is even a challenge for us in the kind of sacrifices that Srila Prabhupada given us. You know, to have enough money to print books, to have enough money to build temples. People are struggling just to maintain themselves. To have enough money to put on big Sankirtan festivals. It's very difficult, and it's, it's so difficult that there's often contention between people who run different Vaishnav projects as to who's going to get the money. You know, hey, you can't come and collect donations in my zone. I, I visited a temple once where um, some wealthy man on his own volition came to talk to me. This is when we were working on the reading book project. And the next day the town president came up to me and said, I used to listen to donations in my zone. And he, he gives me a letter about the rules of collecting money in his zone. That you have to inform the local person before you see a donor who you're going to talk to, how much you're going to ask for. And I said, but I don't collect any donations. People just spontaneously give me something. He said, well, if they do, then you've got to give 50% to the, this thing and that thing. And, you know, there's this competition. Thinking, well, there's, there's not, people have so little, there's so much scarcity, that how are we going to maintain our project? How are we going to print books? How are we going to have temples? How are we going to put on festivals? And there's this, this contention. So these big, what to speak of these big sacrifices, you know, if, if we're worrying about getting the money to build a building or if we're worrying about the money to print some books or to put on one little festival, you know, how would you ever get the money to have big sacrifices with huge quantities of gold so forget it? And then these sacrifices dependent upon people with actual criminal power. And we don't have those people. I mean, look, we've got some people who are really uh, expert at saying Sanskrit with proper pronunciation, but they, they don't have subtle powers. I mean, there's really not very many people on the planet today who have genuine subtle powers. Now, formally, the Kshatriyas, one of the reasons they listened to the Brahmanas is the Brahmanas could curse them. And the Brahmanas' power was above that of Kshatriyas. That's why Vishwamitra Muni decided, wanted to become a Brahmana because the sister was able to defeat Vishwamitra with his subtle powers. So the Kshatriyas were very obedient to the Brahmanas, and they had faith in the Brahmanas. So that doesn't exist today. You know, we don't have, I don't know of any, I mean, maybe there's one or two, but, you know, I don't know of any Brahmanas who are lighting fires with mantra and making dead animals come back to life in front of an audience. This isn't going on. And Prabhupada makes kind of a strong statement here. He says, therefore, there is no practical utility of chanting the original hymn. So if you're not doing them properly, they, they don't have, have any efficacy. And frankly, we have some people who really get into this kind of stuff, probably because they were doing it in another life. And that's not really the point. That's not the time, that's not the sacrifice that's relevant for our time, place, and circumstance. So the sacrifice, how many times does Prabhupada say here, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, thank you, Tom, thank you, Tom, thank you, Tom. So the ultimate sacrifice is the Sankirtan Jagya. So why is, and of course Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that a sacrifice is he is Japa. 
And if let's look at them. Let's look briefly because we're running out of time here. Let's briefly at Joppa and it. Sankirtan. So Joppa is a sacrifice. What are you sacrificing in Joppa? One is sacrificing one's time, one's energy, one's thoughts, one's emotions, and one's breath. And Japa is an interesting kind of sacrifice because on a material level, uh, there's not much sense gratification involved in Japa. So there's some sense gratification involved in the sacrifice of prasadam, or like Prabhupada says, the householders producing a child. Uh, that's the kind of sacrifice. Obviously, there's some sense gratification there. When we're singing in kirtan, sankirtan, there's the pleasure of the music and the dancing. But in Japa, that, that's not there. So it's a complete sacrifice, complete giving. And then uh, Sankirtan is, a, of course, the main sacrifice for this age. I suppose in this age of, of quarrel, just getting together with other people at all is a sacrifice. Right? A, lot of, a lot of the difficulty we have in the Sankirtan Jagya is the sun part working with other people from disparate backgrounds, Prabhupada talks here, anybody from the without caste distinction. You know, people that materially we probably wouldn't associate with. People from different socioeconomic statuses, with different norms of behavior, different cultures, different ways of looking at the world. And there's some sacrifice in just living in harmony with such people and working in harmony with such people. And then again, it's time and energy and breath and focus. And why is this chanting the names of the Lord and Sankirtan and Japa? Why, what is, how, how is this in one sense the ultimate sacrifice that you're looking at the externals up till now? But on an internal level, why is it? Because the highest level of sacrifice, again, is to connect with love with the Supreme. You can't avoid sacrifice. This is our dharma. We must sacrifice. We must. Not just to free ourselves of unintentional sins and not just to gain material prosperity, but because it's who we are. We just have to sacrifice because we're made for. The hand is made to put food into the mouth. You see little babies. What do they do? They pick up things and put them in their mouth. That's the natural function of the hand. It can't help it. It's what it does. But what kind of sacrifice gives us yadyatma supersedity? Does stealing give us satisfaction? Does that kind of sacrifice give us satisfaction? Does the sacrifice, is the superficial sacrifice, where I apparently am working hard as an honest citizen, but really all I'm thinking about is myself, does that give us sacrifice? Does working just for our own purification and freedom still with ourselves at the center, does that give us satisfaction? Even a desire for personal liberation with, with attachment to spiritual opulence and happiness, does that give us ultimate satisfaction? No, the only thing that gives us ultimate satisfaction is that pure love with the supreme lovable object. 
And what is the simplest expression, the most core expression of love, is saying the name of the beloved with affection and with a mood of serving and giving. It's the simplest, most core demonstration of love. So it is the ultimate sacrifice, just to be in the presence of the beloved and giving oneself in service. So if one does this kind of sacrifice in the right mood, then even though one ultimately doesn't care about the lower things, they're all taken care of. The one who's doing the ultimate sacrifice in bhakti yoga without offense, chanting without offense, just to please the Lord, just to realize the Lord is his name, everything else will come. All lower forms of sacrifice are already included. And therefore one is satisfied at all levels. Well, there's no question of avoiding sacrifice. That's not possible. Avoiding giving and serving. It's not like, okay, well, I've done my giving, serving for the day. Now let me kick back and be the center. It doesn't work. I'm still giving and serving something. I'm giving and serving the body and mind, which is superfluous to me. So if I'm going to be a giver and a server, if that's who I am, if that's what I am, if that's my dharma, why not find a way to do my dharma so I become fully satisfied? And if one can't be motivated by that, then at least try to do my spiritual dharma so as to find freedom. And if one can't be motivated by that, at least try to do one's dharma as given in the Shastra so that one will attain material prosperity. But somehow or other, do sacrifice. Don't be a thief. Somehow or other, do sacrifice according to Shastra. At least that. We would like all of society to at least, minimum, be on that platform. And one, then one may go, uh, perhaps gradually, but one may go eventually to coming to the point of the highest dharma. So questions, comments? Corrections? Okay, everybody is unmuted on free conferencing. So, any questions or comments? Go ahead. Yeah, I had a question. So, when we're chanting Japa, is there any question of false ego involved? Well, there is at least three stages of chanting, offensive, clearing, and offenseless. On the offenseless, on the pure stage of chanting, no, there's no false ego. On the other two stages, by definition, there's false ego. And I heard this class, uh, or somebody was talking at a class about Sachinanda Swami, and he mentioned that sometimes when we're chanting the Holy Name, actually the Holy Name is chanting us. And I never heard that before. Do you have anything to comment on that? Yes, Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about that, not in those words. Bhaktivinoda Thakur talks about how the Holy Name enters the heart and moves up to the tongue and is vibrating the tongue. Ayendra talked about Krishna using one's tongue as his instrument. And Prabhupada, of course, will talk about Krishna dancing on your tongue. Thank you.
Um, I'm a little. Um, I have a question about uh, in the verse. I. Mars Judas here, he's described by this word, uh, Bita, that uh, he was afraid after the battle of Kurukshetra. So he, he's thinking the necessity to perform the sacrifices, and of course they're for the satisfaction of the Lord, but the Lord, the uh, Yajna Purusha is right there before him, and Krishna wanted the battle. So in one sense, why would there be a necessity to perform separate yajyas. Well, I, I discussed that briefly, that because Maharaj Yudhisthira's position is on the level of Bhagavad Gita 424, that everything he does, he himself, the offering, the process of offering, the results of offering are all transcendental, he doesn't have any need to perform separate yajyas. I mean, Krishna makes this point very clearly in the Bhagavad Gita, that a person who's already in regard to Janaka, which is a similar situation, that such a person has no reason to do his ordinary duty, and but nor does he have any reason to give up his ordinary duty. So Maharaj Yudhisthira, no, he had no, he had no personal from his personal perspective, he had no need to do any of that. But that's part of the duty. I, I read a nice quote. You know, there's this calendar they put out with a quote from Prabhupada for each day of the year. And the other day I read one where Prabhupada said, I don't care if I live or die, but if you want me to live, then do it completely. Don't be neglectful. And I thought that's really interesting. You know, okay, I don't care if I live or die, but if I'm going to try to live, do it with all, you know, all engines at full throttle. So Mars, you just, he doesn't have any reason to be the king. For his personal self, he has no reason to be the king. And he has no reason not to be the king. It doesn't really matter to him one way or the other. His happiness, his, 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 the fulfillment of his needs are not dependent at all on whether he's the emperor or not. From his personal perspective, it makes no difference to him. But if he's going to do it, he's going to do it without being neglectful. And part of being the emperor is to set an example that one should atone for sins, even accidental sins. And to Show the people that if some violence is necessary. Remember, I was talking about three ways that we hurt people. One way is where we go out to hurt people because we want to hurt them. We're thinking, to get my needs met, I must hurt this person. And it's, it's very intentional. Another way is where we hurt them sort of incidentally. We know we're hurting them. We're aware that we're hurting them. We have some regret that we're hurting them. But we think it's unavoidable. And the last way is where we're not even aware that we're hurting them. So I'd say this was in the category of the first thing, where there was an intentional, not malicious, but there was an intentional uh, battle is like that. In order to get what we need, we're going to hurt you. It's not just sort of on the side. The Mars Yudhisthira is showing that for any harm we do to others, whether knowingly or unknowingly, we should, first of all, we should assume that we're harming others. It's a safe assumption that in the course of our day, every day, we're harming others. We're probably harming some of the humans that we interact with. We're definitely harming lower creatures. I definitely am killing insects every day. There's just no doubt about it at all. Some of them intentionally, like the mosquitoes who try to bite me. And I don't generally have a whole lot of remorse about it. So what to speak of the insects that I'm uh, killing unintentionally? 
Samara Judasir is part of being the emperor. It's part of the job. He's going to do it. He's got to do it. If Mara Judasir just says, well, you know, I'm working for Krishna. He's right there in front of me. What do I need to do any sacrifice to atone for any sins committed in the battle? And everybody else will do that too. I'll work for Krishna too. And this was exactly what Krishna said to Arjuna in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Because, you know, Arjuna had four main objections to fighting. One of them was personal enjoyment. He said, how am I going to enjoy the kingdom at the cost of killing my relatives? Prabhupada would talk about that and say, who am I going to show the kingdom to? You know, if you get a new car, what do you want to do? You want to drive around and show it off to your friends. There's nobody to show it off to. What's the point of getting a new car? Another was sin. Arjuna said, you know, I'm going to, uh, <coughs> sin will overtake me if I slay such aggressors. And Prabhupada said, you're not even supposed to offer a verbal attack to a superior. You're not supposed to yell at your superiors. What to speak of trying to kill them. Uh, another one was he was concerned about uh, tradition going on, unwanted children, and that society would fall apart. And the other was compassion, because Arjuna's expatria, his main business is taking care of citizens, not killing them. So our, Krishna answered Arjuna, three of Arjuna's questions in the second chapter. He answered the question of sin, of compassion, and of enjoyment in the second chapter. In the third chapter, Krishna answers the question of unwanted population and the breakdown of society. And there Krishna says that it's the way to avoid unwanted children is to do your duty. That if you walk away from your duty, that that will encourage unwanted children in society. Why is that? Where do unwanted children come from? They call, come from people engaging in sex without taking responsibility for the children. Without doing their duty, in other words. And Generally, that refers to the man because it's a little harder for the woman to walk away from the children. But a man impregnates a woman and he walks away. Doesn't take care of the woman, doesn't take care of the children. And, of course, nowadays both men and women are engaged like that. Let's just kill the child in the womb or let's just somehow be neglectful. So if Arjuna was neglectful in his duty of fighting on the battle when he had to, even when it was difficult, because why do people walk away from their duty? Because it's, it's difficult. It involves sacrifice. It involves austerity. It's hard. So if Arjuna walks away from his duty when it's hard, then other people walk away from their duty when it's hard. And then you'll have a whole bunch of neglected unwanted children. So in the same way, Marjorie here can't walk away from parts of his duty that are hard. Yes, if he's going to be the emperor, he's got to be the emperor. He doesn't personally need to do it, no. Arjuna didn't personally need to fight on the, in the battlefield. But whatever, whatever one should do, one should do to a high level of quality. And for the uh, bhakti yogi who's aspiring for Braj Prem, uh, one should also meditate like this. Such a nice song by Bhakti Thakur in his Gita Mala. In the last section, the fifth section of Gita Mala, where he's talking about attaining his Siddhadeya on the platform of Raganuga Bhakti. And the reason I'm bringing this up is to show that this consciousness of doing my duty for Krishna's pleasure as yagya does not only apply to people at the level of karmakanda or karma yoga, and does not even apply only to the people at the level of vaidhi bhakti, but it also applies on the level of raganuka bhakti. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur, in his mood as a manjari, 
is saying that whatever little service he's given, even if it's a very little service, he tries to do it with great care and expertise. Bhakti Vinod Thakur writes this letter to Jaipataka Swami saying that surrender to Krishna means whatever service I have, I try to do it with great care. The same principle was saying that Prabhupada said, I don't care if I live or die, but if you're going to try for me to live, then do it with all care. Do it thoroughly. So one can also think, you know, I'm, I'm ultimately a resident of Vrindavan. I'm, you know, as one starts to realize one's Swarup as a cowherd boy or a gopi or whatever it may be, and one may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm Krishna's cowherd boy, and Krishna's given me this duty to do. Krishna's given me the duty to polish the silver, or Krishna's given me a duty to buy an airline ticket, or Krishna's, and that's the duty I've been given. And it's, it's not different than, you know, the duty of playing games with Krishna or the duty of, decorating the kunja for Radha and Krishna's loving affairs. And one can meditate like that, whatever one's doing. You know, that I'm I'm here doing service for Krishna Balaram or for Yasoda and Nandamarj or for Radha and Krishna and Lalita and Vishaka. This is my service that I'm doing. I was, I was talking to, uh, and I'm going to do it expertly, in all respects. In all respects. Even though some of the aspects of my service are going to appear mundane and unnecessary for a self-realized soul, like doing that big jagya. But that, if that's part of the service, if that's part of what needs to be done, then I'm going to do that too. But my mood is different. I was talking to one devotee the other day who works with the Child Protection Office of this planet. We were saying how it's a very unpalatable service because you have to deal with all kinds of nasty things. I was saying, you know, you can do this in the mood that you're assisting Krishna to kill the demons who wander into Vrindavan or even to deal with, uh, you know, some devotees who have ended up harming other devotees, just like Indra is a devotee, uh, but he was trying to kill the residents of Vrindavan. And so the residents of Vrindavan, they were help, trying to help Krishna by putting sticks to hold up Govardhan Hill. I said, so you can think, you know, I, that I'm doing this service of protecting the children. It's like I'm putting up my stick to hold up Govardhan Hill. Someone can meditate. And rather than seeing some any, any aspect of our service as mundane, when we connect everything with Krishna, there is nothing mundane. That's Bhagavad Gita 424. Everything becomes transcendentalized. And Rabindu Supu really likes that purport how Prabhupada talks about this is the science of converting matter to spirit. Now, of course, this has to be done under expert guidance. So to find out, that's why one has a guru. And Prabhupada said, especially in the beginning, one needs to really submit oneself to the expert guidance of the guru in order, in the beginning of spiritual life, in order to really get all the details right. Then after one has picked up the principle, one doesn't need to consult at every moment anymore. That's why the brahmachari would live in ashram under firm authority of the guru at every moment. Okay, what do I do? What are the components of my service? What are the things that need to be done? What are the things that don't need to be done? What's favorable? What's unfavorable at this particular time and place? So at the present time, if someone made any of us emperor of the world, which I don't think we should uh, expect that, but if that were to happen, then the jagya we would do would be the Sankirtan jagya, not the kind of jagya that Maharaj Yudhisthira does. So for that one needs expert guidance. What are the appropriate aspects of my service? What are the appropriate jagyas to do? And then whatever they may be, even if they appear to be mundane. If we're doing it, it 
in full Krishna consciousness as a dedicated as a dedicated offering of love to Krishna. And then that is there's no question of it being superfluous. I thought it was a little bit long answer. Oh, that's just so nice. You know, it's not like uh, I haven't heard any of this before, but it, it's really nice when you put it all together like that. Uh, thank you. Anybody else? Uh, Ramana, Hare Krishna. Yes. Yeah, you seem to, um, it seems to me that you were saying, I'm not quite sure, if you were saying that um, um, Sankirtan Yagi or, ja, or Japa is more of a sacrifice because it's not, say, uh, maybe as nice as Prashadam. I, I don't know if you, you were saying that. Oh, I think you said that. And um, I was just I was wondering whether that doesn't... I was saying it doesn't have, especially Japa, it doesn't have any material sense gratificatory element in it. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it's the material element. Because I was just thinking that, obviously, I mean, the advanced uh, devotees, I mean, they, they tell us that the name is so relishable, and uh, we know that because well, we don't have this, like, jaundice. But for someone who's, who's on a conditioned platform, you know, it, let's say yeah. you just walk up to somebody on the street and you give them prasadam. So prasadam has, you know, it's, it's pleasing to the tongue and the belly. It has a, a a sense gratificatory aspect to it. The same with with musical kirtan. But japa is not like that. You know, you, you have a lot harder time convincing somebody out on the street to sit down and chant around of japa than to eat an upper sodom cookie or to listen to uh, melodic kirtan. That's my point. Yes. All right. Thank you. And I'm not, I wasn't talking about self-realized persons for whom all of the relishing they're doing of all activities are transcendental. Yeah. I, was, I was talking about the materially engrossed person, so thank you for clarifying. Hi, Krishna. Anything else? Yes, okay, thank you very much. All glory to Shiva Prabhupada. Hi, all glory to Shiva Prabhupada. Thank you, Mom. Jai. 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 Jai.